October 31st is what? <laughs> Are you guys afraid to say it or? Okay. Well, it, it's Halloween, certainly. It is Thursday. Uh, it's also Reformation Day. Reformation Day, which is kind of, we, you've been hearing, we've been speaking about that, talking about that. Officially, uh, Reformation Day has been uh, commemorated since 1567. Uh, Reformation Day, and I'll, I'll say some things that you've already heard this morning, but it's good to hear them again. Reformation Day is a religious holiday that was uh, marked off on the calendar to remember uh, what transpired as a result of what a, a German monk named Martin Luther, we sang his, one of his hymns this morning, as a result of what he did some 500 years ago. And what was it that he did? Well, in 1517, as Thomas mentioned, on the eve of October 31st, All Saints Day, that's what it used to be called, Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. Theses, what is that? Well, it's plural for a thesis. It's basically a, a series of propositions that are stated or put forward for consideration, especially ones to be discussed, improved, or to be maintained against objections. Theses. There was 95 of them. As an example, in case you've never looked at them, Proposition 54 was this. Wrong is done to the word of God if one in the same sermon spends as much or more time on indulgences as on the word of the gospel. You may not know what indulgences are, and this is not the time that I'm going to discuss that. But if you don't know, I would encourage you uh, to look that up concerning the Roman Catholic Church and indulgences. And actually, a good piece of the 95 Theses was addressing this abuse, uh, this uh, tradition of the church uh, that was, was very wrong, very wrong, and unbiblical, to say the least. Indulgences. Luther's 95 Theses was written to address uh, serious problems uh, he saw with the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was posted to the church door so that these matters might be debated and the church reformed. By the way, posting like this, the way he did it, was the traditional way of inviting the academic community to discussion, discuss an issue. It wasn't out of the norm. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, what's he doing? He's nailing something to the door of the church. That, that was the way they were making a post so that these items could be discussed. Luther also mailed a copy of his 95 Theses to his bishop. Although the document was originally written in Latin, and this was in Germany, so and most did not speak Latin, uh, but the church officials did, and it was not intended by Luther even to be distributed to the public. Again, it was uh, an attempt to, ref- to see reform happen in the church and to discuss these things with church officials and scholars. It was eventually translated by others into German, published and spread throughout Germany. So the common people now read it as well. This document that Luther posted on the church door led to more than uh, he could ever have anticipated. The Catholic Church, 
unwilling to be questioned or consider possible reforms or have their practices and beliefs examined or held up against Holy Scripture eventually label Martin Luther a heretic. He was part of the Roman Catholic Church. They labeled him a heretic and excommunicated him from the church. Additionally, at that time, there was this combination of church and state, a very dangerous one. We never want to return to that, trust me. Uh, The emperor, Charles V, who was under oath to defend the Roman Catholic Church and remove, quote, heresy, or whatever they determined to be heresy, from the empire, declared Luther an outlaw. So just think about that. That would be like if, I, if we booted you out of Summit Bible Church and then you became an outlaw of the state, subject to imprisonment, maybe even death. So uh, he was declared an outlaw, but Luther was able to escape before he was captured and sentenced. Martin Luther's posting and the church's efforts to silence him gave birth to a movement that no one was able to stop. A movement that we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Here's a quote for you, considering that word Protestant, hopefully. It was in 1529, some 12 years after Luther had nailed his theses to the church door, that the word Protestant became a popular term describing those who supported Luther's protest against the church. Protestant, it's one who protest. The name Protestant was applied to all who argued that the church be reformed. That was the end game, that was the goal. But the Catholic church refused. Luther died in 1546 with his revolutionary theses forming the foundation for what is known today as the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I am a Protestant, I'm a Christian, but I am within the realm of of being a Protestant. I am not a Catholic, and it's on purpose. There is a serious distinction. There is a big difference, a very serious difference. Um, A couple of recommendations to you. I... I don't, there, probably, there might be something even better, but I watched, it was just a, a if you have no, I, I say the book that, that Thomas recommended, yes, and he sent out a link for that, and that would be great, fantastic. There's also a movie back in 2003 called Luther. It was uh, a good movie to at least familiarize yourself somewhat with some of these things. But here's another book I would recommend to you. It's called Church History in Plain Language. I know a few of you have this, Church History in plain language. And one of the chapters is called The Age of the Reformation. And it takes you all the way from the beginning of church history, first century, up to, I think, 1950, 60, something like that. But uh, it would be very helpful to you to understand where do we come from? How did we get here? And uh, sadly, I, um, many Christians are unfamiliar with the history of the church, which is tragic is tragic. Uh, There's much to learn uh, and to be grateful for and thankful for and to worship God for as we look at how God has worked throughout history and where we've come from and the the challenges we have faced. 
Uh, it is the practice of some churches to formally commemorate Reformation Day. When is that? October 31st. On the Sunday prior to October 31st. And they call that Sunday Reformation Sunday. Okay? While it has not been our habit as a church to formally celebrate Reformation Sunday, it, it doesn't mean I personally don't acknowledge the day or think about the day or am glad for the day and all that it means, but we, we just as a, as a church haven't necessarily done that. I think uh, in, back in October 2012, I did, I did do a Reformation Sunday message regarding the five solos, and, um, or solas, I should say, solas, and if you are unfamiliar with those, that is something else you should be familiar with regarding the Reformation. But I have decided to, again, take a break today from our verse-by-verse study of Philippians, and in honor of Reformation Day, speak a little, and I do mean a little, and so I'll leave you with questions, which I hope you will seek answers to if you don't have the answers on your own, um, on, the, on, on a most significant issue and focus of the Protestant Reformation. In other words, what came out of that? And that is the doctrine of justification, which is why your sermon, or the sermon is titled Justification, and you'll see that in your, your notes. It's in, in, it's in light of Reformation Day and the, Refor- the Protestant Reformation. By the way, I taught on the doctrine of justification at length when I was going verse by verse through Romans, and it's all available online, and uh, that subject matter begins in Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 21, and all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, and so just, Paul addresses uh, the issue of justification there, and so if you want a more thorough treatment of it, that is certainly one place you can go to find it. But to this day, the Catholic Church, beloved, continues to be wrong on the matter of justification. They have not changed. They're still wrong, 500 years later. And many people have been influenced by their teaching, even Christians, in one way or another. Either they they may have formerly been Catholic, or they, they rub shoulders with Catholics. And so this teaching might have oozed out of them. And, and beyond that, this this wrong teaching concerning justification is also found in other uh, religions of the world, false religions of the world. So it's kind of all around us. So today, again, I'll touch briefly on the subject of justification, but it is my hope that you will, if you never have, take the time to study the matter further. So here I go again. Here's that big white book. And um, did you ever get this? What? What? Her birthday has long passed, my friend. Do I need to buy this for you? Do I need to buy this for your mom? Okay, all right, okay, all right. You all heard it. Hold them accountable. That woman deserves this book. Okay, well, it's right up here. You take a picture of it with your phone so you don't forget. (laughs) Okay, so, biblical doctrine. (laughs) Okay, Um, so this this book addresses, honestly, I don't, here, how about ladies, guys, whatever, all of you should have one of these in your home, and, 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 and maybe, here's an idea, you can buy it for your husband, ladies, or you can buy it for yourself, either way, either way. 
by it, but if, if you have husbands or men's of, men of the house, they're supposed to be leading their home spiritually. Buy them this book and tell them, Pastor said, I bought this book for you, now take our family through it. Okay? That's, that's real right there. That's real Christianity right there. All right, so just a fantastic book, but in this book, they address, obviously, along with many other doctrines, all the doctrines of the Bible, they address justification. So um, I'm going to be quoting from this book today. Maybe that'll spur you on. You'll see it's just very well written, very accessible. You don't have to be a brainiac, okay, or a nerd or any of that stuff. It's just it's written really well and to help us understand our faith, which we need to understand. All right, you have one week to get your mom the book. All right, you know I love you guys. Um, all right, so let's, let's look at it quickly. The doctrine of justi- justification answers the question. The doctrine of ju- and you might be familiar with justification already. Great, great. Then this will be some, a refresher course, some review. But again, I just wanted to take a snapshot of it on this day, on Reformation Sunday, and because it's such a critical issue, so important, and uh, a very large, massive uh, grouping of people, Catholics, have it wrong. And so we, even Christians, I've even in talking with Christians, sometimes they get confused about this issue, and we need to have it right. We need to have it right. The doctrine of justification answers the question, how is a sinner made right with God? Or right before God, either way, right with God or right before God. A biblical doctrine, I'll refer to it going forward as BD, uh, quotes, says it like this, justification answers the question, how can sinners come to be in a right relationship with the holy God of the universe? Again, I'm going to skip a lot of stuff that would normally need to be included in a thorough understanding of justification or study of justification. This is really just a snapshot, some high points. But that question, how is a sinner made right with God? And justification, the doctrine of justification, the teaching, the biblical teaching concerning justification answers that question and answers it correctly. Okay, answers it correctly. If you look at what the Bible actually says instead of listening to uh, men, men, or have it wrong. That question, though, presupposes that sinners are not right with God, right? That's what the question presupposes. They're not right before God or not in a right relationship with the holy God of the universe. And, of course, I'm not going to take all the time right this morning because we don't have it to demonstrate that from the Bible, but we know that to be true. We can confidently say that is the case, uh, that we, in our natural state, are not okay with God. We're not right with him. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. And for that matter, God, uh, your own conscience will convict you of those things. But the Bible clearly communicates that to be the case. Every man, woman, boy or girl born into this world is not right with God. They come into the world as sinners and they sin against a holy God. B.D. quotes, says this, God is perfectly righteous Matthew 5, 48. He is light, says the Apostle John, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. That is, he, God, is entirely holy, free from any moral defect or impurity. 
All mankind, on the other hand, has sinned against God and thus falls short of that holy standard, Romans 3.23. By our sin, man has become the very darkness that has no fellowship with the God of light. All, and I mean all, have broken his law and thus have incurred the penalty for their crimes. As Terry mentioned earlier, death and condemnation, Romans 5, 16 and 6, 23. If sinners are to have any good news at all, the consequences created by their breaking that law and being alienated from God must be overcome. But how can that be? Yes, how can that be? A word, beloved, justification. A justification. How can sinners come into or come to be in a right relationship with the holy God of the universe? Justification. Justification is what bridges the great divide between the sinner, and it is a great divide, and a holy God. It is what makes fellowship with a holy God possible. Justification is what provides the sinner with the very thing they lack and desperately need in order to be with in order to be right with or right before God, in order to have everlasting fellowship with the Holy One, in order to enter into his holy heaven. What is it that we lack? What is it that the sinner lacks? But faith, okay. Righteousness. Righteousness is the thing that every sinner lacks and desperately needs in order to be made right with God, right before God, to come into a right relationship with the holy God of the universe. It is righteousness. BD says, people are condemned to eternal spiritual death because they lack the righteousness that a perfectly holy God possesses and, beloved, and requires for fellowship with him. I don't know. Can you pop that up again? I don't know. I hope you know that. But he requires it for fellowship with him. He requires it. It's a must. And we lack it. We don't have it. Nor, beloved, can we get it on our own. And then, if righteousness is what we need in order to be made right with God, right before God, to have a right relationship with God, to enter into his holy heaven, to have fellowship with him. And then you read a passage like Matthew 5.20, you think maybe there would be hope 
for mankind, some kind of hope? Could they obtain this righteousness? But he says something like this. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, maybe you don't understand how serious of a statement that is, but let me quote now in BD, from BD, so that you understand how that would have been so unnerving and alarming and shocking to the audience to whom it was spoken to first. Scribes and Pharisees, the people of Jesus' day. BD says this, in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees were the paragon or the perfect example of ceremonial righteousness in Israel. They were the religious elite. Everyone in Jewish society would have expected the scribes and Pharisees to have attained the righteousness that God requires. They were experts in God's law and in keeping God's, I'm I'm adding now, I'm not reading. And yet Jesus says that if a man is to enter heaven, he needs a righteousness that surpasses even the most religiously devout people. In fact, he goes further than that. Just a few verses later when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Uh-huh, what? If man is to be reconciled to God and hear it, hear it, hear it, he does not need to be a good person. He needs to be a perfect person. He needs a perfect righteousness, for God himself is perfect and requires perfection. That is what God requires. Now that should shake you. It should shake the sinner. God doesn't, as someone has said before, he doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say, ah, well, the rest of the people around you are pretty bad and you're not as bad as them, so that's all I'm looking for. No. Perfect righteousness, that's the message. So how in the world does the sinner obtain perfect righteousness? Let me ask. By, by trying, wait, here, let's try. By trying harder as a sinner to live according to God's righteous standards? Is that how? Does that even make sense? And yet, and yet, that is what a lot of folks are doing. Attempting. Futile. As I said, many, many say, well, that's not possible, so they lower the standard. That's nice, but you don't get to lower the standard. God established the standard. It's his standard. He's calling the shots. He says what goes. And what goes with him is perfect righteousness. Perfection. And so when we consider 
uh, these passages I'm going to look at in a second, it, it actually makes complete sense in light of understanding that God's standard is perfect righteousness, not uh, 50%, 60%, halfway there, not too bad, trying real hard. No. If you want to have fellowship with me, righteousness. Pure righteousness. See? I think, and again, I think part of it is that uh, we have allowed people, allow uh, their view of God to be determined not by what the scriptures actually say, but by what they would like him to be. You know? More approachable for them, more easy. He's more like, in fact, they make God out to be more like us, which is a huge mistake. He is not like us in this regard. Perfectly holy. Morally pure. Untainted. Sinless. Perfectly righteous. To fellowship with me, you too, sinner, must be perfectly righteous. Well, then forget it. Right? But listen. In light of that, then these verses that we read, they make sense then. And yet, people keep not listening to these verses because they actually still think it's not perfect righteousness. It's just my futile attempts at righteousness will will allow me to be right with God. Or some ridiculous idea, yeah, I got a lot of bad stuff I've done, but maybe if I do more righteous stuff, maybe if that pile is higher than this pile, then God will... Not consider the other pile. Hello, you have two piles. And the fact that you have two piles means you are not perfectly righteous. So Galatians 2.16, when Paul says, we know that a person is not, because he understands what the scriptures say, we know that a person is not justified or made right with or right before God or or allowed to come into a right relationship with God by works of the law. For that matter, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Because who, who keeps the law of God or all that he has commanded of his creation? Who keeps it perfectly? Who never violates his word? Who? No human being the very best we had, which was Adam, by the way, sinned. He was the best we had. The best representative of humanity. He was the best. You couldn't get better than him. And he sinned. And in Romans 3.20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law of God exposes your sinfulness. It helps you see just how unrighteous you and I are and how holy God is. It shows you that the gap is too wide, and yet people foolishly keep thinking they can bridge the gap. Not possible. That's what the scriptures teach. 
Justification, beloved, is not trying harder or doing better as a sinner. It is not, it is not, justification is not a sinner's imperfect efforts to obey God or live according to his righteous law. It isn't doing your best to be a better Christian. And and the reason I'm saying this is because of how many times I have heard people suggest otherwise or say something like that. How do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Well, a Christian will hopefully say, I believe in Jesus, but if, and I'm, I'm trusting in him, but if they add something to that, then they have aligned themselves with what I just said, like, uh, I believe in Jesus, I'm trusting in him, and I try to be a good Christian. Okay? So let me get this straight. It's, it's something, it's your belief in Jesus plus this other thing, your attempts to be good, or I've done my best to keep the Ten Commandments, or I go to church, or I'm a faithful church person. Then you think that you'll, you'll be allowed to be with God in heaven, and he will say, welcome, because he'll say, oh, you believe in Jesus, anything else? Ah, okay, I see. Luckily, you did those things. All right, come on in. No. And this is important. Let me put it this way. Justification isn't, isn't, biblically speaking, justification isn't believing in Jesus and trying to be more like Jesus. It isn't. That's not justification. I'm not saying Christians aren't supposed to be more like Jesus. They indeed are and are called to be and empowered to be through their salvation. But that is not justification. That is not how a sinner is made right with or before God or how the sinner comes to be in a right relationship with God. That is not. Justification has nothing to do with you doing better or getting better or trying harder. It does not. Let me put it this way. Here's another thing maybe to think about. Justification should not be confused with the work God does in every Christian over time. That is, he gradually transforms them to be more like Christ, to be less a sinner and more like the righteous one. Don't confuse those. They're two different things. They are bound together, but they are two distinct things. That work I just talked about, that transformative work, that is the work of sanctification, okay? Sanctification. Not justification. That's not justification, what I just said, the transformative work. This is important. Um, Let me explain why. So first, what is justification then? You keep saying what it's not. What is it? Well, it is this. It's not a process. It's not transformation. It's not your lame, futile attempts at being righteous or earning or meriting God's favor because of your imperfect righteousness. Justification is a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration. BD. Justification is a legal or forensic declaration of righteousness, not an actual impartation or infusion of righteousness. 
It describes what God declares about the believer, not what he does to change the believer. That's sanctification. In fact, justification itself affects no actual change whatsoever in the sinner's nature or character. It is an instantaneous change. Note that. It is an instantaneous change. What's instantaneous? Over time, right away, like this, instantaneous, of one's status before God, not a gradual transformation that takes place within the one who is justified. So why is that important? Well, as BD points out, disagreement over the nature of justification was one of the key debates of the Protestant Reformation. And it still, to this day, divides biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism mixes justification with sanctification. They mix them together. BD. They, speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, collapse sanctification into justification. The inevitable consequence is that the believer's own imperfect righteousness replaces the perfect righteousness of Christ. Just so you know, that's a big no-no. As the sole ground of justification, the result is, quote, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which as Paul says in Philippians 3.9, and we'll get there someday, is not the saving righteousness of God. It is not. This is the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless concerning the law. And he wasn't counting on any of that because he knew that wasn't enough. He was relying solely, solely for his right standing with God, his right standing before God, for his right relationship with God, he was relying solely on the righteousness of Christ because that's the only perfect righteousness there is. So on what basis does God instantly, instantaneously declare the sinner righteous? Beloved, let me say it again, solely on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's it. That's, that's the grounds on which or from which God can declare a sinner making that legal declaration. It's, on, it's based on his righteousness that he can declare the sinner righteous. How does that work? How does that work exactly? Okay. Well, that brings us to the matter of imputed righteousness. These are other words, like you're like, what's that? Imputed righteousness. Do you know what that is? Don't answer. If you don't know what it is, it is not okay. It is not okay for you not to know what that is. You should know. Like, you should already know, unless you're really new to the faith, but have you been a Christian for five years, ten years? If you don't know, and I'm not, no sh- I'm not shaming you. I'm, I'm, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. You should know what that is. As I begin to describe it, you'd be like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. If this is all new to you, well, okay. This, and then the reading of this, and this, 
You should know these things, beloved. You should know them. It's not okay that you don't know them if you don't. Imputed righteousness. The process is imputed righteousness. So again, to quote from BD, God, in imputed righteousness, this is what he does. There's both the positive and a negative side. God counts, credits, or reckons our sin to Christ and punishes him in our place. That's the cross. And he imputes Christ's righteousness. He counts or credits that righteousness to believers and then grants them eternal life in him because he can, because the issue that divided us from him, the great chasm that we could not bridge, is resolved through Christ, through his perfect life, through his righteousness, and through his death, so that we can be, through the imputation of righteousness, declared right before God, right with God. We are declared righteous. In order to be declared righteous, one's sin has to be dealt with, but it's not just that. It's not just a matter of our sin being dealt with. If, if, remember the piles? If I've got a big pile of unrighteousness, sin, that went somewhere in my head. It shouldn't have gone. If I have a big pile of this stuff, this stinking, nasty, keeps me from God, separated from God stuff, you got to get rid of that. But if that's gotten rid of, then I'm just sitting here with nothing. What else do I need? What did I tell you that we need in order to be right with a holy God, in order to have fellowship with him? What do we need? Righteousness. You can't have this stinky pile of stuff. You got to get rid of that. But I also need to be, this is the positive side of justification, I need to have righteousness, but I don't have any. So what God does is he, in Christ, resolves all that stinky stuff through his death where he took that stinky stuff, the penalty, the payment for all that junk, he took it upon himself, and then he takes the perfect righteousness of Christ legally, in a legal way, and he says, this is yours. I'm counting you as if you have the righteousness of Christ. Did you, where, what part did you play in that? What part? And so when we read a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's exactly what I'm talking about. As one commentator commenting on this passage and the issue of justification. He says this, in the moment of salvation or justification, the sinner's wickedness is placed on Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness is placed on the sinner. Luther called this the great exchange and there is no greater. Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness. God then declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's work alone. Another image that I've used before may be helpful, maybe not. We, are, we have a robe of nasty, disgusting sin, unrighteousness, disobedience, rebellion, and ain't no one coming around us, especially not God. Now, we can hang out with each other because we all share the same robe, right? But listen, not God. 
You ain't coming into my house with that nasty, disgusting robe on. It stinketh. Okay? Not to lighten it or anything, but just to get the imagery. That has to be dealt with. That robe is able to be discarded because of the work of Christ on the cross. He dealt with that robe so that it is dissolved. It's no more. That is forgiveness in Christ. All of that sin has been dealt with in the fact that he was punished for all of it. All right, but now I'm naked. Right? I didn't have anything on under the robe. All right, for the illustration. So the robe's off, and I'm standing before God naked. I need to be clothed in righteousness. So he takes off the robe of Christ, if you will, and places it on me. It's still Christ's righteousness. It's never mine. And that's the only thing that makes me right with God. It's not, it's not my church. It's the only thing. It's not my church attendance. It's not my Bible reading. It's not my religious devotion. It's not my futile attempts or broken attempts at keeping God's law or even the commands of Christ. While we are called to do those things, those kind of things, certainly, and God transforms us over time that we do that more often, more consistently, God willing, that in and of itself is not what makes me right with God because that is still broken. It always has been, always will be, by the way, the righteousness of Christ. I'm, you know, okay. So justification, I gotta move on, is both negative and positive. It's both negative and positive. It deals with the yucky stuff and it adds the stuff to us that we need. It removes that what gets in the way between us and God and gives us what we need to have fellowship with the holy God. We need righteousness. So, How does the sinner actually, though, enter into that great exchange? How do they experience it? And this comes back to maybe what we heard, certainly what we heard earlier, that word faith. You know, I read, and by the way, the Bible says that faith is a gift of God. So even that, even that is not something you you work up in yourself. God actually grants you the faith that you might believe that he might gift you the righteousness of Christ. None of it is a work of you. That, that, has, that has implications on you. It, has, it does something to you, or it should do something to you. If you get this wrong, though, if you start thinking you had something to do with it, or you're trying to merit it or earn it, that also has implications. That also does something to you which is not good, not right. So I read from Romans 3.20 earlier. Let me read the, the full section. And we'll see, it is faith. But now with the the few things that you've heard, bringing it together, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A few verses later, Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? If we had nothing to do 
absolutely nothing to do with making ourselves right with God. What comes of that? It is excluded by what kind of law or principle? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And again, I referred to uh, part of Galatians 2.16 earlier. It was broken up there on the text. Now let me read the whole thing to you. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law exposes the sinner for what they are. It reveals how far away they are from God, how impossible it will be for them to ever live up to his perfect standard. That is why we need alien righteousness, if you will, righteousness outside of ourselves. We can never obtain it on our own. But it's the very thing we need in order to have fellowship with the holy God. And God has not said, too bad, so sad. No, but he has graciously and in his love and goodness and kindness and mercy provided that perfect one in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous man who died in our place so that the issue of our sin could be addressed and removed permanently from our record. And at the same time, he could, through the process of imputation, justification, declare that sinner who has, been, has had all of his sin removed, now declare them righteous by imputing to them, crediting to them, reckoning to them the righteousness of Christ, of Jesus Christ, the perfect man. I'll finish with this. B.D., There have only ever been two religions, only two. They go by a bunch of different names, but there's really only two. The the religion of human achievement by which man works to contribute to his own righteousness. That's all the other false religions of the world. They all have that component in one way or another. And the religion of divine accomplishment, whereby God accomplishes righteousness by the holy life and substitutionary death of the Son of God, and then freely gives that righteousness as a gift through faith alone. The religion of human achievement encompasses every other religious system in the history of mankind, from the pursuit of nirvana in Buddhism, to the five pillars of Islam, to the sacraments and acts of penance of Roman Catholicism. Biblical Christianity is the lone religion of divine accomplishment. Biblical Christianity, I said that. Because Christians are justified by faith alone, their standing before God is not in any way related to personal merit. Good works and practical holiness are not the grounds for acceptance with God. God receives as righteous those who believe, not because of any good thing he sees in them, not even because of his own sanctifying work in their lives, but solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which is graciously reckoned to their account through faith alone. 
Therefore, we may define justification as that instantaneous act of God whereby, as a gift of his grace, he imputes to a believing sinner the full and perfect righteousness of Christ through faith alone and legally declares him perfectly righteous in his sight, forgiving the sinner of all unrighteousness and thus delivering him from all condemnation. Now see, it is, it is the doctrines of the Bible that, that change you and, and impact you in such a way where how could you not worship this one? How could you not give your life away for this one? Right? When you, when you understand these things, those are the very things. Doctrine, someone said, doctrine is life. It is. It, it is life. It breathes life into you. When you understand that you would have nothing, no hope, no chance apart from the sacrifice of Christ, from his willingness to come into this world and die on your behalf, that you would have no chance apart from his righteousness that he gladly gives to all who will put their trust in him. When you begin to understand those things, then you understand he owns you. And you are glad to be owned by this one. Beyond that, the whole issue of pride and our arrogance, where's it finds no room to breathe in the doctrine of justification. You and I, I don't care where you are in the Christian paradigm, I don't care where you are on that scale, you and I are stand right before God on the, on the same basis. It's only because we have received this gift of righteousness from our God from, as a result of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's it. You and I are getting into heaven if we are getting into heaven, those of you who have believed. We get in on the same basis. It's not because I'm better than you or I'm smarter than you or I did more than you. No. None of that. We walk through that door. We have fellowship with our God only because of our faith in Christ and because of his work on our behalf and his righteousness. That's it. So that just can do away with the looking down on one another. Or thinking you're superior to the other. We're all nothing apart from Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done throughout history and the necessary and needed reformation that sprang forth from uh, one of your men and, and his, his act of seeing, of reading the scriptures and seeing some, some things that were seriously wrong with the church at that time and, and trying to address those and, and then having that man-centered church push back and, and try to shut him down. And Father, through all of that, you brought about a very needed reformation, the Protestant Reformation as we refer to it. And Father, we, are, we just want to reflect on that and say we're thankful, we're grateful for in that, the truths of the gospel were brought to light again and they were, they were restored and celebrated and, and honored and through that, people could hear the truth of how 
a sinner is saved and made right with you. And that is glorious, and we're grateful for those things. But Father, help us never to forget these things. And help us, Lord, I pray you'd work in our hearts that we would know these things. We wouldn't know them because someone has told them to us, but we would know them because we ourselves have looked into them. We have read your word. We have studied books. We have read and and understood these great, glorious truths concerning our salvation that we might be forever changed in our hearts and in our minds because of them. And, and, and Father, it impacts all of our life. And, and so, Lord, I, just, I pray you do that work in this little local body here, Father. Bring conviction that people would not be okay with an ignorance concerning these things, but that they would, they would, would, would long in their hearts or, or be disciplined enough to study these wonderful truths Men died over these truths. They spilt their blood over these truths. They fought for the truth of the gospel. And, 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 and then people here in the 21st century don't even know about these things. Father, I pray you bring conviction. In Christ's name, amen.